This is Guns and Butter. According to um, a researcher in Germany, Margaret Kennedy, who's a professor there, she's collated uh, data from businesses at all different stages of production of a product, and she has found that 35% of everything we buy goes to interest. So if we owned the banks, we would get that interest. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Ellen Brown. Today's show, Restoring Prosperity with Public Banking. Ellen Brown is an attorney, researcher, and author. She is the author of The Web of Debt, The Shocking Truth About Our Money System and How We Can Break Free. She is the author of many books on natural healing as well as numerous articles on the financial system. In Web of Debt, her latest book, she analyzes the Federal Reserve and the Money Trust. I caught up with Ellen Brown at a fundraiser for public banking in San Rafael, California. She is on a speaking tour of the U.S. and abroad. Today we discuss the Public Banking Institute, which she heads, public versus private banking, two banking models, sustainable and extractive, the Federal Reserve, the shadow banking system, the repo market, the benefits of a public banking system, debt, the money supply, compound interest, and all things money. Ellen Brown, welcome. Uh, thanks, Bonnie. It was uh, nice to finally meet you in person yesterday at your fundraiser in San Rafael. Oh, likewise. You are the chairman and president of the Public Banking Institute. Its website says, Banking in the Public Interest. What is the Public Banking Institute that you had, and what are its goals? Uh, it's a 501c3. It's a, a nonprofit think tank sort of um, institute. We're, we're all volunteers. We're just uh, promoting the idea that we'd all be better off if um, the states, counties, cities, even the federal government owned its own bank and borrowed from its own bank and used it uh, the way banks are used. In other words, um, put the public's revenues in the bank and um, created credit with that money. So what what banks do now, the the perks that Wall Street has that we aren't sharing in is that Wall Street is able to take our deposits. Our government, state, local, and county and city revenues are deposited generally in Wall Street banks, which then make loans with that money, even though the money is still there on deposit in the bank. That's the way banking works. So they're able to... um, extend credit, charge interest on those loans, but they're not using them right now for the benefit of uh, the local community. They tend to be using their ability to create credit for uh, derivatives and speculation, for buying up corporations that perhaps are um, competing with our corporations, like you know foreign corporations. Anyway, they're not investing in our interest. So a, a publicly owned bank would be something on the model of the Bank of North Dakota, which is the only public bank that we have right now, the only state-owned bank. It's been in existence since 1919. Uh, all the state's revenues by law go into the Bank of North Dakota, and then the bank does what any bank does. It um, it creates credit out of those deposits, but the deposits are still there. So they haven't spent the government's money. They've lent it without spending it. It's still there when the government needs to withdraw it. What happens if the depositor and the um, 
borrower come for their money at the same time, what banks do is they borrow from other banks at the Fed funds rate, which is 0.25%, or they borrow from the money markets, or there are many different sources they can get funds. But that's this whole, if you hear the term liquidity, that's what they're talking about, is where do they get their money if the deposits have already been uh, withdrawn. So the bank is able to borrow very cheaply, and then turn around and lend that money at 5% or 8% or 16%, depending on what type of loan it is. Um, and then they um, they get that spread, they get that interest. So if we own the bank, we can recapture the interest and use it for public purposes. In North Dakota, they have a very nice dividend that's returned to the state every year, and that that allows them to do all sorts of services that we keep being told that we can't do, that we have to tighten our belts, that we're in deficit, that we can't find the money. But North Dakota has had a very nice surplus ever since 2008. In fact, they're in the enviable position of trying to decide what to do with the money. Should they should they add more services? Should they cut taxes? I mean, they're the only state in that position. And it's because, or one good reason, is that they have their own credit machine that is creating credit um, for stimulating the local economy. Well, when you say that the Bank of North Dakota accepts deposits from the government and the government's money remains in the bank and then the bank makes loans, these loans are just ledger entries, right? Right. That's the the way banks work is that it's double entry bookkeeping. So if you go to the bank to take out a mortgage, which is a loan, let's say, um, say you want to buy a house, then you will sign a mortgage, which is a negotiable instrument, which is your promise to pay a sum of money over time. Let's say it's $500,000. So the bank will write that $500,000 on one side of its books and call it an asset to itself because you have promised to pay that money over time with interest. And then on the other side of their books, they'll write the same $500,000 as a liability to themselves because you're probably going to turn around and write a check to the seller of the house and that check's going to leave the bank and then the bank's going to have to come up with the money somehow. So so that all nets out to zero from their point of view, but what they've actually done is create $500,000 that's going to go out into the, to the system. So then where do they get the money? Um, when you write your check and it has to clear they would normally draw from their own deposits, which would be, in the case of the Bank of North Dakota, would be the revenues of the state that have been deposited there. But if they don't happen to have the deposits, um, their reserve account will just go into deficit, and the Federal Reserve, which is what clears all these checks, automatically just says that the reserve account is basically overdrawn, which means they have to get the money from somewhere else. So they can borrow it from... Um, the deposits of other banks, for example, and they have two weeks to come up with this money. So some other bank will have the money because they just transferred the money over there. They just sent a $500,000 check into some other bank. They can borrow that back. back. The money they just created, they can borrow back at 0.25%, the Fed funds rate. And meanwhile, they've lent it to you at 5% or something. So they get that nice spread. So if we, the people, own the bank, we would get that money. And um, it's not even just 5%. According to um, a researcher in Germany, Margaret Kennedy, who's a professor there, she's collated uh, data from businesses at all different 
stages of production of a product. And she has found that 35% of everything we buy goes to interest. So if we owned the banks, we would get that interest and we could recapture that, that money. So banking, instead of being this parasitic thing that's just continually sucking profits out of the economy, that money could be returned to the economy and we would have a sustainable system. Now, the way you are describing banking, it sounds like the loans are actually, in some sense or another, based on deposits. Now, I thought that uh, the money was just being created out of nothing rather than being based on deposits. Is that incorrect? Well, it is created out of nothing in the first instance. I mean, the, when they when they do the double-entry bookkeeping, they just write the money into their account. They don't look to see what they've got in deposits. They don't look to see what they've got in reserves. The loan officer is a totally different department from whoever is keeping track of the reserves. They just write or they write it into your account as they write a number in your account. So they've created a deposit account. So in that sense, they've created money because what they call money depends on how you define money. But if you look at the M1, M2, M3, M2 is a circulating money supply. That includes coins, dollar bills, and checkbook money. So anything that's a deposit account is going to be counted as money. So if they open a new deposit account, they've just created money. But in order for that, that I mean, you might just leave that money sitting there and then nothing happens and they, they don't have to worry about deposits. But whenever you write a check on that account, then the check has to clear through the Federal Reserve or some other clearinghouse. And that means they have to draw you know, from their pool of deposits in order to clear the check. But if they don't have the deposits, not to worry, um, they will get it somewhere else. There are many different places they can get it. And if there's no other options. The Federal Reserve itself, well, they can draw from the Federal Reserve's um, discount window at 0.75%. So still very cheap compared to what they've just charged you. Now, is a public bank intended to be used only by governments, state, county, and local? And if so, how, are the, how would the government be using the public bank? Well, the, no, the public bank is a bank that actually it uh, partners with the local banks. It's run by bankers, not by politicians. And, in fact, in North Dakota, the, we, we have one uh, retired North Dakota banker on our advisory board, and he you know, makes it very clear that he says we are bankers. We are not development people. Um, and they they avoid the politicians. You know, they, they make loans because they're credit-worthy loans and not because some politician has leaned on them to do something. Well, no, but I mean, how does the government use the bank? What is the government requirement? What is a public bank? It's it's not a retail bank. It's not for individuals, right? Uh, well, it globally, 40% of banks globally are publicly owned, and some of them are t retail banks. You can set it up any way you like, but the Bank of North Dakota is more of a banker's bank. So it um, primarily partners with the local banks, helps them with the reserve requirements, so they guarantee the loans, so that that helps with their capital requirements, and they help with liquidity. Um 
but they do make some individual loans. Like they'll lend at 1% to startup farmers. They have certain policies that they pursue that are helpful to their local community, which is largely farming and energy. So so they make low interest loans for alternative energy, for example, and they make 1% loans for startup farmers directly. And they used to make student loans directly, but now student loans have been taken over by by the federal government. Well, what is the difference between private and public banking? Um, a private bank has private shareholders and the profits go back to the shareholders or to the CEOs. You know, uh, a private bank is out to make <laughs> out to make money or out to make profits. So, so they get bonuses, fees, commissions for churning loans. I mean, that that is one problem is that they're their mandate is to serve their shareholders and of course their their management is going to make as much money as they can get away with as well whereas a public bank its mandate is to serve the public it's um, staffed by basically civil servants I mean they don't make bonuses fees commissions for for making extra loans so they're, they're a lot more conservative in who they'll lend to and their mandate is to take the long view and do what's good for the local community rather than what private banks, they're, they're always taking the short view. I mean, the shareholders want their money now. They're looking at their three-month quarterly profits. Well, you write that the Federal Reserve is composed of 12 branches, all of which are 100% owned by the banks in their districts. Who owns the banks in their districts? Uh, well, for example, the the largest uh, Federal Reserve Bank is the New York Fed. It's owned by about 500 banks in their district, and they're obviously private, so all their shareholders are private investors. And those are the people that are they're looking at the short-term quarterly profits and the and the bottom line. They're not they're not interested necessarily in whether even the bank survives, you know, and they certainly don't care particularly about whether the farmer that just got the loan, how his business does. They just want to make their profits and get out of there. You know, they'll foreclose if whatever. They, It's all about money. <laughs> that's the understatement of the century. Yeah, I guess that's what banking, <laughs> banking's all about money anyway. But, yeah. but it's whether the, the money serves the people or serves the, serves the private interests. I'm speaking with attorney and author Ellen Brown. Today's show, Restoring Prosperity with Public Banking. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. There there are two models of banking globally. I'm, I'm writing a book now on public banking, so I'm looking at banking globally and historically, and there are two competing models that go back actually for thousands of years. One is a cooperative model where the idea is to create credit for the community, support the community, and the community shares in the profits. And the other is an extractive model where the bank is sort of in opposition to its customers and to the rest of the, you know, the economy. And so the idea is to keep pulling pulling money out. So whenever they reinvest the money, it's their private profits reinvested. So it's always, they're always taking more out than they put in. That's the nature of compound interest. And compound interest grows exponentially if you look at a graph of it, which is unsustainable. So you have a sustainable model versus an extractive, unsustainable model, which results in these periodic 
um, booms and busts, you know, in the 19th century with banking crises on the average once every six years because of this model of puff up a lot of credit, get everybody locked into debt, and then you withdraw the credit, and then you foreclose and <laughs> take all the properties. Well, you have said that the banks lend only the principal and not the interest, which is the nature of the debt system. What do you mean by this? And how does that explain why debt grows exponentially? Um, again, there are two models. Um, when a bank creates money by double-entry bookkeeping, they'll write you a loan for $500,000, but they want you to pay back $500,000 plus 5% or whatever over 30 years. So if you look over the whole 30 years, you, you will owe back probably twice as much as you borrowed in the first place. California, for example, has $155 billion in outstanding uh, loans for the type that you do for bonds and infrastructure. And of that $70 billion is interest. So that interest is not created in the original loan. So that where are you going to find that extra interest? Somebody somewhere has to take out another loan, which is basically a pyramid scheme. So there are only two two alternatives. Either you keep expanding the money supply or somebody has to go into default. It's a game of musical chairs and the odd man out is always not going to have enough money to pay off his his loan and he'll lose his property. So the bank will issue a loan for 10, take back 11, issue a loan for 11, take back 11 and a half, etc. So if you look at a chart of that, that, that does shoot up exponentially. And is the bank charging interest on interest? Is that what the phrase compound interest means? Right. And you might think, well, I'm I'm not paying compound interest as long as I pay my bill. But that's not actually true because the way they calculate uh, mortgages, compound interest is baked, baked into the formula. And 80% of all loans are mortgages. So we actually have a huge compound interest thing going on, even though we're not aware of it. It's pretty complicated to explain. But the thing is, you're not actually, let's say you're paying $2,000 a month on your mortgage. That's not actually enough to cover principal and interest for that particular period. That's the way they calculate it. So it's your interest is actually growing as you go through this 30-year cycle. Yes, it's interesting. I was talking to um, one of my credit card companies, and if the amount due is not paid off in full and the the balance begins to accrue interest, they're charging what they say the daily average balance, and that daily average balance includes the accrued interest. So they're charging interest on interest. Yeah, that is compound interest, yeah. Yeah, so that's why uh, eventually eventually the debt can't be paid, right? Right. Well, if you look at a graph of uh, an exponential curve, it eventually shoots skyward, and that's the point. In nature, the only things that show exponential growth are things like parasites and cancers, and they ultimately run out of their food source, and when that happens, they hit the, hit the ceiling and they drop straight back down. That's the way the, the way the graph looks. So that's what happens with these booms and busts. Well, how does a public bank uh, get around the exponential growth of compound interest? The original model for a public bank, and still probably the best model, was 
the Bank of uh, Pennsylvania in Benjamin Franklin's time. At that time, the colonists had figured out how to avoid having to borrow from the British bankers. They didn't have their own money. They didn't have gold in the colonies. So the choices were either to borrow from the British bankers uh, at interest, and the British bankers were just printing their own banknotes anyway, so it was still just printed money, or the colonists devised this idea of printing their own money. But some of the colonies just printed and printed and printed, and they tended to hyperinflate the money supply. But in Pennsylvania, they got the idea among in several other of the colonies um, to um, form a bank. So they would print enough money. That, say, say you printed $105. You're the issuer of the money. So you're not just lending, but you also issue the money. So you issue $105. You lend 100 You spend 5 on your budget. And then there's 105 out there in the economy, and it all comes back as principal and interest, 105. Then you lend the 100 all over again at 5% interest, spend the 5, it all comes back as principal and interest. And you can do that over and over, and it's quite sustainable. So during the period that they did that, they paid no taxes because the interest was sufficient. Plus, of course, they had the power to create the money they needed. Uh, they had no government debt, and prices did not inflate. So it was a totally sustainable, ideal system. And today, of course, states do not have the power to actually print money, but they can own a bank. So the, the bank then would lend, let's say they lend they lend $100, um, and it gets paid back as $105 with interest. But the bank will then uh, return those profits to the government. The 5% either goes to the government or, or it goes into more loans for the economy. But anyway, eventually the profits get returned to the government, which then spends them on the government budget. So they go out into the economy. The difference is that a public bank will spend its money on public services. So we get the benefit of that money. And that will put people to work and stimulate the economy, et cetera. Whereas on the extractive model, the profits are taken out and they're reinvested. So it's money, always money making money. They're always taking more out than they put in. They're lending it in and taking that plus a percentage. I mean, even if it's even if the money gets paid to the CEOs and so forth, they've got so much money that they they put it into money making money things that are they're always expecting their money to get bigger and bigger at the expense of the economy. So what you're saying then is in a public bank, the interest that the bank uh, receives is then reinvested for the public good rather than going to private use, essentially. Right. Right. It goes to the government, which then pays it in its budget. So it's all those services that they tell us we can't afford. We can afford because we now have the interest that um, banks collectively in 2011 collected 725 billion in interest, and we paid 454 billion in interest on the federal debt. So if if the federal debt had been financed through the central bank, which then rebates the profits to the government, the Federal Reserve actually does rebate its profits, even though it's the 12. Federal Reserve branches are privately owned. They don't want to do it, but they were forced into it in the 1960s, long story. Um, so so if we owned the central bank and funded the federal debt through it, and if 
we owned the banks collectively. I know that's not going to happen anytime soon. But just hypothetically, we could do exactly the same thing Pennsylvania did. We would have 725 plus 454 is more than $1.1 trillion, and our income taxes were $1.1 trillion that year. We actually paid more in interest in those two things. Yeah, we paid that in interest, which if we'd gotten that back, we wouldn't have had to pay income taxes. Well, now, should Congress nationalize the Federal Reserve and the banks? You have pointed out that, in fact, the federal government nationalized General Motors and American International Group, or AIG. You've also written that nationalization is the same thing as bankruptcy and receivership. How would the Fed operate differently if it were nationalized or part of the Treasury than how it operates now? Well, right now, the Federal Reserve is completely independent from Congress. And in fact, um, Alan Greenspan said that once in an interview. He said, I think the interviewer asked something about what his relationship was with the president. I think it was Clinton at the time. And he said, well, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> he said, because, uh, you know, the president really has no control over what the Federal Reserve does, that they're they're an independent entity. And according to the Federal Reserve Act, they're set up to serve the banks. So, for example, with all this quantitative easing, the money is going directly into bank reserve accounts, and it never makes it into the real economy. Now, if, if it were government-owned and controlled so that the government were using it for the purposes of the public, they could do what some central banks have done historically, like the Commonwealth Bank of Australia in the early part of the 19th century. Um, they could just directly make loans for, or even uh, Roosevelt in the 1930s through the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, just made loans to everything in sight that was productive and that would put people back to work during a time when when we were in a, you know, a difficult economic times when we were in a recession and stimulated the economy and got everything going again. And it, it paid off in the end. It actually turned a profit for the government. So this was not handouts. It did not put us deeper in debt. We actually broke even and made a little profit from the 1930s investments. And in Australia, they just issued the money as credit and did remarkable things. They built roadways and seaways and funded the participation of the country in World War I, all without borrowing internationally, without borrowing from the Bank of England. The, the mistake of the governor of the Bank of Australia was that he then went to England and bragged about it, and the, he passed away shortly thereafter, and they um, changed the system after that. Well, what do you say to the frequent criticism that during the Great Depression, the United States government did not have the debt overhang that it now has so that the same solutions will not work? I've heard this claim made many times. Um, you could, if if we own the central bank, well, we could refinance the entire debt overhang. The, the debt itself does not hurt anything. It's the interest that hurts. The debt is actually our money supply. All of our money is debt-based except for um, dollar bills. And, you know, a very small percentage of the money supply is actually issued by the Federal Reserve as dollars or issued by the Treasury as coins. And all of the rest is debt, bank debt. And the government's debt, the federal debt, is basically the same size as the circulating money supply. 
so if if we had no debt, that's what um, um, Galbraith said in the 30s that we had to we had to preserve the debt in order to have a money supply. Um, but what grows exponentially and what is a problem is the interest. If you look at a chart of the projected interest, like up to 2080, it starts to turn up exponential and it looks quite dangerous. So if we refinance that through our own central bank, in other words, the central bank could just, they're doing it anyway. They've like quantitative easing too with 600 billion where they just bought up federal securities. But let's say hypothetically, they issued 15 trillion in quantitative easing and bought up the whole debt and just paid off all the creditors now and, and rebated the interest to the government. So it would basically be an interest-free, interest-free debt would be an interest-free money supply. It would just be money. In fact, that's what the Japanese do. They borrow from themselves, and that's why they have a debt-to-GDP ratio of 235%, and they're still way up there. And I mean, they're the global leader in many industrial things, like all these electronics and sophisticated parts. I mean, they're actually doing very well. They're sort of, they keep a low profile and pretend that they're heavily in debt, but they're in debt to their own people. So we, we could do that as well. I'm speaking with attorney and author Ellen Brown. Today's show, Restoring Prosperity with Public Banking. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, that's interesting. You you say the real problem here then is the interest accrued. How would the government get rid of this interest? Well, that's it. If they refinance through their own central bank, then they get to keep the interest. The interest is rebated. The Fed, even now, the Federal Reserve rebates the interest to the government, even though you can argue about whether it's um, actually publicly owned. But if it were nationalized in the sense that Congress could actually control what the Federal Reserve did, then um, we could eliminate the interest and we could use that vehicle for creating credit to direct it to what the economy needs. And there are many countries that do this. China, India, Russia, um, the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, their banking sector is all dominated by publicly owned banks, and the government uses those banks to direct the economy and to support industry, and they all escaped the banking crisis of 2008. They're growing like gangbusters. They've grown by 92% in the last decade. We We could do the same thing. We tend to say, you know, like that the Chinese are cheating because they they support their industries with the with the national credit. But instead of pointing fingers and saying that they're competing unfairly with our banks, what we should do is have a look at what they're doing and maybe consider copying some of that. Well, right. You have said that 40 percent of banks worldwide are public and, like you've just gotten through saying, that they've grown by 92% in the last decade, specifically in the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, and Latin America. Argentina being a primary example. What's going on in Argentina? Well, Argentina is a, a very interesting case because their currency totally collapsed in 2001, and then that's when uh, the president was Kirchner, and he... Um, he just told the creditors to go away. He said, we don't have the money. <laughs> Come back later when we've got it. Told the IMF to go away. And they just started issuing their own money. They issued pesos at the at the federal level and at the um, 
city local level, they issued uh, warrants, which were they were bonds or they were basically government IOUs, but they they accepted them in the payment of taxes, unlike what um, when California recently issued IOUs. They refuse to accept them in the payment of taxes, so that doesn't work as a currency. But as long as the government will take it back, like they were giving us their IOUs, but they wouldn't take them back in payment. Uh, but in Argentina, they did. And at the local level, they had a very large and um, successful community currency. So they created their own money supply. And within four years, they they had remarkable growth. I think it was something like 7% a year, contrary to all the critics said that you know that this would be a disaster cutting off their uh, source of borrowing internationally in fact they didn't need the international loans at all they they created their own credit and got their economy going and it and it did very well so right now then Kirchner I guess has passed away and his wife is now president and the head of the the central bank is also a woman and they're just very quietly just doing their own thing and they're not like shaking a fist like Gaddafi did and just um, took on the world and you know tried to mobilize the whole African continent the way Gaddafi did they're just very quietly saying well you know we've seen your model and we don't think it works very well and we decided to try this other thing so they're just issuing credit and it's working really well for the Argentinians they do have price inflation but the people aren't worried about it because they're also getting um, wage increases to match, and the whole economy is just doing so well. They're just delighted to see their economy thriving. And you've said that China owns its banks and that they can't sell off more than 25%. That in China, the banks are publicly controlled, the credit mechanism to pay for workers and materials to make a product, um, that they're not dependent on private banks and speculation. Is this true, and is this why you just got through saying that the U.S. says they're cheating? Well, the, the you know World Trade Organization rules say that you can't do certain things, and um, one of them is, you know, they make loans to these businesses, and then if the business defaults, if the business can't pay, then it's just treated like a grant. In other words, they just write it off. So technically, their banks have these non-performing loans, but, but really what they're doing is just supporting their industries, particularly their export industries, by, by supporting them with credit. And yes, they do own, their, their big banks are publicly owned and publicly controlled, and the government um, directs them what to do. But you know where I, I just read recently that even though they um, they still have these five-year plans and so forth, it's really at the local level where all this productivity is happening, that the local governments control where the credit goes in their local economies. And they really have a go-local model much more than we do. They're, they're starting at the grassroots and going up rather than starting at the top and going down like they used to do. Well, let's talk about QE3, or quantitative easing to infinity, as they call it, $40 billion per month. They're buying, I guess, mortgage-backed securities, toxic assets, right? You have said that a QE3, or quantitative easing to infinity, is no more than an asset swap on balance sheets. Is that what you mean, because they're buying up these toxic assets? Well, what happens when they 
the Fed issues credits, based, you know, it issues accounting entry money, which it then buys the assets from the reserve account of the banks. So, so before the bank had dollars, and then it used the dollars to buy these assets, and now the Fed has bought them out, so now the bank has dollars again. So the bank doesn't actually have any more than it had before. The mortgage-backed securities have just been turned back into dollars. So, so this whole exercise of QE3 is not really helping the homeowners. Supposedly, it was, it was to lower interest rates, but interest rates are already at three and a half percent, which is ridiculously low. So that's not the really the holdup in the housing market. Uh, so then, various commentators were wondering what the real point of QE3 was, and that the argument that looked the um, most logical to me was Catherine Austin Fitz said that. Uh, she used to work for HUD, and so she's kind of an insider. And she said that the Chinese and the pension funds and you know some big important investors had bought most of these mortgage-backed securities. I, I think it's uh, Fannie and Freddie. These um, securities are backed by the government until the end of 2012. But when that, that guarantee runs out, there's not going to be any market for these things. And so the Fed is basically creating a market for them because otherwise the Chinese could be very upset. <laughs> you know, the Chinese are actually in a position to, I mean, they could be a military opponent if we aggravated them too much. We made representations that these were AAA investments and our our own pension funds, our own pensioners are not going to be too happy if if all their money collapses. So that was the idea to save the investors who are, big, important investors, not just little little people. Um, but it is not helping the real economy. I think quantitative easing is a good idea. I mean, I think they need to get more money out there. The money supply has shrunk by $4 trillion since 2008, if you count the shadow banking system, that M3, which is pretty complicated. But um, there's not as much money competing for goods and services as there used to be, and therefore there's not the demand, and therefore businesses don't have money coming in, so they can't hire, and that causes unemployment, et cetera. So we need to get more money into the economy, and quantitative easing isn't doing it, although apparently it is serving some purpose that is useful in its way. Well, now, uh, when the government buys up these uh, mortgage-backed securities, many of these assets not worth much. Uh, is it the taxpayers then that are really buying this stuff up? No. it's uh, The Federal Reserve creates the money on its books. It's creating money and getting back the mortgage-backed securities. So it's, it's monetizing the mortgage-backed securities, basically. It's turning these assets that were interest-bearing into dollars, which are not interest-bearing. In other words, it's, it's an asset swap. That's what the Fed says. They're not creating anything. They're just swapping non-interest-bearing notes, which are called dollars, for interest-bearing notes, which are called securities. Right. But then does the QE3 then devalue the dollar eventually? Will it have that effect? No. That's what everybody thinks, that it's hyperinflating the money supply, that money's going out into the economy. And competing for goods and services, and therefore raising prices. But it's not. It's not making it into the real economy. Um, 
I think it would be good if it did. We need more money out in the real economy. People point to oil, food, um, gold and silver and say that prices are going up. Those are the obvious ones. But the, they're going up for a different reason. It's not because there's too much money in the in the money supply. And you can tell that by looking at housing. If there were too much money in the money supply, housing would be going up as well. And it's still way low, even though it's creeping up. Um, the reason that commodities are going up is that uh, the speculators or the investment money, include, you know, you and me, all the people that have money invested somewhere, uh, the hot money, the money that moves from one investment to another, it used to be in real estate, and then real estate was suddenly a bad investment, and everybody got out of it. The mortgage-backed securities that were supposedly AAA weren't AAA, and housing itself is declining. And so now there, there's really no other safe place to park your money. You can't really even put it in government bonds anymore because they're, they're paying so little, which is all done to save the banks. So the only thing that really appears to be going up these days is commodities. And so everybody's money is moving into commodities. The funds are in commodities, pension funds, all the big institutional investors. They now have big investments in commodities, including food and oil. So that's interesting. So I guess you're saying then the uh, speculative money has gone into commodities, and that's what's driving the price up, not a falling dollar is what you're saying. Right, and not the fact that there's too much money competing for too few goods. If there were, they'd be putting people back to work, making more goods. That's what happens when when there's an increase in demand. The first thing that happens is they put people back to work, and it doesn't drive up prices until you have full employment, and we're nowhere near full employment. That happened in Argentina. When they finally hit full employment, then prices did start to rise, and at that point, Kirchner... Um, put uh, price controls on the goods. But another thing you can do is just, you know, pull the money back in in some other ways, like taxes or fees on things. And I think, actually think the government should be allowed to make some money and all those things that we invest in, we should be able to get a return on that. And that would be a way to get money back to the government and keep it circulating and make, make the whole system sustainable. Well, now, Bernanke has said that he's going to do uh, QE3 monetary easing to the tune of $40 billion per month until employment improves. But if none of this money is going toward infrastructure or employing people, then it's not going to have that effect, is it? Right. No, he'll just keep doing it until he buys up all the mortgage-backed securities, probably which is, again, probably appears to be to save the Chinese and the, and the pensioners, the big investors. I'm speaking with attorney and author Ellen Brown. Today's show, Restoring Prosperity with Public Banking. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, you've written that the money supply is still short by $3.9 trillion from where it was in 2008 before the banking crisis hit, uh, so that the Fed has plenty of room to expand the money supply. And you've, you've stated that. And I was kind of uh, surprised to read that because with the QE3, of course, so many people are saying that, the, that there's too much money out there. Yeah, well, that's the point. The QE3 did not make it into the real circulating money supply. And what 
what is short is in the shadow banking system, which is so obscure that most people haven't even heard of it. They didn't bother to regulate it in Dodd-Frank. It's only regulating the conventional banking system. But the shadow banking system is actually larger than the conventional banking system. And the conventional system is dependent on the shadow banking system. It's not something you can get rid of. So what it is, it's pretty complicated, but it's... um, it's an added source of liquidity for the regular banking system. So it's the repo market where large institutional investors have more than $250,000 to invest. This would be like pension funds. I mean, so these are ordinary mutual funds, hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds, all those things. They have huge amounts of money, say a, say a mutual fund that sells a stock, and then for the time between when they they sell the stock and they buy another stock. They want to park their money somewhere and they want to make a little interest on it. So they put it in the repo market, which is like this huge pawn shop where they deliver their money and the pawn shop delivers some security in return. And the security is these mortgage-backed securities, which is our real estate that's been chopped up into little pieces and sold off to investors. So that's the that's the shadow banking system, which is actually creating money in the same way that the regular banking system creates money. I mean, they're creating money as credit, and virtually all money today is uh, credit created by banks or these other financial institutions, non-banks. And that, that shadow banking system is the thing that, that collapsed in 2008. There was a run on the shadow banking system on the money markets, and the money markets are a source of liquidity for the conventional banks. And so credit froze across the board, and that was that was the whole problem. So that money is no longer out there competing in the market, playing in the market, being part of the whole credit system. The credit system is huge. The amount of money that is lent, um, well, I saw, I saw an analysis by a man who was actually a gold bug, but he was saying that... Uh, that you couldn't have a 100% gold system because there wouldn't be near enough gold to borrow to meet all the demands at all the stages of production of a product, that a product that uh, that they borrow at each stage of production. You have to pay your workers and materials before you have a product to sell and before you get paid by the end purchaser. So that's like 90 days net. So for that whole period, all these producers have to fund their their business on credit. So you could add up all those producers of a single product comes out to many times what the actual price of the product is. And that's all credit that flies back and forth every day. You have these billions of checks that are just flying back and forth. And uh, you need to get that. That's liquidity. You need to get that credit somewhere. And that largely comes from the shadow banking system. Now, when you use the term shadow banking system, you're talking about this credit that you're talking about what money market funds are you talking about derivatives um the derivatives the derivatives trades actually allegedly come to one and a half quadrillion dollars i mean it's a huge huge impossible sum, and that's the shadow banking system is only it was twenty twenty trillion at its height and it's now dropped to sixteen trillion i think. So it's, it obviously doesn't include derivatives in that sense. But but I've seen that somehow the derivative, maybe it's the problem. I'm not sure what the derivatives are connected to the shadow banking system somehow. I'm not just sure how. Oh, well, the derivatives, for one thing, are the insurance that protects 
all these mortgage-backed securities, supposedly, but we know that they really don't, you know, like the credit default swaps, which are basically bets on um, whether or not these things will default. So you have investors on both sides that if you buy the insurance, then you're betting that the thing will default, I guess. And if if you're selling the insurance, you're betting it won't default and somebody has to pay the other party depending on how the bet comes out. Right, the credit default swaps. So just to be clear about the shadow banking system, you're talking about what, all of this overnight credit that's flying around? Right, and it's the, the shadow banking system is not part of the the conventional banking system is depository. You know, it's based on deposits, and it's where banks create money in the form of deposits. So the shadow banking system also creates credit, but it's not bank credit. It's non-bank credit, but it's the same thing. I mean, it's still credit that's out there that's competing in the money supply. Um, it, it used to be. Uh, counted in M3, but now they don't report M3, but it's still out there. That whole system is still there. They just couldn't figure out how to count it. And so, I mean, that was their reasoning for not reporting it, although other suspicious commentators say that it's because they, they didn't want us to see <laughs> to see all this, you know, the shadow business that was going on and how big it was and how fragile, because there's nothing protecting it. There's no FDIC insurance. There's no... De- deposit requirement, no capital requirement, but it it evolved for good reason. I mean, you need to have a flexible credit system like that. Here's here's what, if I can suggest my vision for an ultimate credit system, what I think the problem is, is that it's all private and therefore nobody would trust the bank unless the bank has the money. Like at some point, the bank has to come up with the money. But if you had a public system, you don't need to be backing it with mortgage-backed securities, chopping up our real estate or gold or whatever. You could just have a credit system. In other words, what you're really turning into money is the borrower's promise to pay. You're monetizing the future ability of the borrower to pay back, back this loan. So the borrower goes to the bank, the public bank, and says, this is me, this is what I plan to do with the money. I'm going to build whatever. This is how I'll pay it back. You know how to find me. You've got the court system. You can, you can attach my, this is what I have in the way of real estate, et cetera. So, so you've got this whole public system, including the courts and the sheriff. And, and so everybody trusts it because you know how to, how to, to collect. And then you're turning that promise to pay into money. And that's what money is. That's what it was among the, uh, the colonists. Originally, it was just little receipts showing that that, uh, goods and services had been delivered to the community and that the community owed that sum. So it seems to me that the whole system is totally messed up. And the reason is that that we feel that we have to back, you know, we feel that money is is a commodity. I guess that's what I want to say. We think that money is a thing and that you have to get the thing somewhere. You have to dig it out of the ground or you have to get it from somebody else. But that's not really what money is. Today, all money is merely legal agreements. It's merely um, credit, turning your promise to pay into credits that can be spent for other credits in the system. Right. In other words, uh, money is created by law. Yeah, exactly. Now, is it true that 20 states have introduced bills for public banks? Right, of one sort or another. They're either bills to form a bank or to have a feasibility study. 
Colorado has an initiative um, to form a, a state-owned bank. And what about postal banks? In France, you can bank at the post office. How does that work? Uh, very well. In Japan, the, actually, the largest um, depository bank in the world is the Japan Post Bank. And that's where that where the Japanese tend to uh, save. So they get a little interest on it, on their savings. I mean, you can go and get your stamps and make your deposits and write your checks all in the same place. So you already have all these post offices all around the country. And then if you turn them into a public bank as well, where people can save money and write checks, it works out very conveniently. Um, and then the Japan Post Bank then buys the Japanese federal debt. So the people themselves are getting interest on their own federal debt. That's been going for over well over 100 years. But in um, New Zealand, they just recently set up a postal bank, which they did it because their big banks were Australian, they were foreign, and they were they were just going after the bottom line. And, and there were many places out in the country where it just wasn't financially profitable to have a branch. And so they were closing all these branches. So the, the New Zealanders were quite upset with this whole system. So they they used their post offices to set up a public banking system where everybody could then have access to to a bank and and it was wildly successful despite the critics who said that it wouldn't wouldn't work or that people just moved their money in droves into this public bank that they were much happier with than the foreign banks. What about student debt? How dangerous is this debt? I have heard it said that student debt is the new debt bubble. It is. It's um, over a trillion dollars now, and there's no way it can be paid off. I mean, not all of it. So it's very like the subprime loans. It's, you know, shaky debt. The students themselves have had all the protections that debtors are supposed to have have been taken away from the students. They can't file bankruptcy. Um, their Social Security can be tapped up in order to pay the, the student debt. I mean, your Social Security is there for your security in your old age. And if you can cut into that for your for your student debt, it's quite a desperate situation for some people. And well, like UCLA, <laughs> where I went to law school, um, is now $35,000 a year for tuition for an in-state student. So you can get out of school for, with like $200,000 in debt. And if you can't get a job, then there's no way you can pay that off. And then they they're allowed to do things like um, increase the interest rate. They just make it much more difficult for you to pay it off. How does public banking benefit the public? Well, first, um, we get the profits from the interest on on our own government money, which currently is deposited in Wall Street banks and they get the interest. And the interest is a lot more than we think it is. It's 35% of everything we buy goes to interest. Second of all, the public can direct, or the government can direct where the credit goes. Right now, Wall Street particularly, which has like five banks, have more than half the banking assets in the whole country, they can direct credit to their own purposes. They've sort of lost interest in investing locally. They're more in now they're into like interest rate swaps and other forms of derivatives and speculating for their own account, et cetera. Um, and 
so that's two. Oh, and then the the um, state bank partners with the local banks, and so it strengthens the local bank's ability to lend to the local community, which they're having a lot of trouble with right now. The local banks are either being bought up by the big banks, they they can't meet the capital requirements, these these heightened capital requirements, and they've got regulators apparently all over them, so they're afraid to lend. So it, it helps with all that. Ellen Brown, thank you very much. Thank you. I've been speaking with Ellen Brown. Today's show has been Restoring Prosperity with Public Banking. Ellen Brown is an attorney, researcher, and author. She is the author of The Web of Debt, The Shocking Truth About Our Money System and How We Can Break Free. She is the author of many books on natural healing, as well as numerous articles on the financial system. She developed an interest in the developing world and its problems while living abroad for 11 years in Kenya, Honduras, Guatemala, and Nicaragua. She is currently working on a new book, The Buck Starts Here, Creating Prosperity with Publicly Owned Banks due out in January 2013. Visit the Public Banking Institute's website at www.publicbankinginstitute.org. That's publicbankinginstitute.org. And Ellen Brown's website at www.webofdebt.com. That's webofdebt.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G.